This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. As we learned in last week's episode, sometimes those who've committed a criminal act and gotten away with it do suffer from a guilty conscience. They may seek to unburden themselves by confessing, but some do so only when it appears that death is imminent. In this week's chapter of the series, Deathbed Confessions, I'll share a story about a brutal murder that went unsolved for 14 years until a hospitalized inmate confessed to the crime. But this story has a twist when fate intervenes and justice is finally served. This is the case of the murder of Joyce Goodner and the confession of James Washington. Just after 11 a.m., James Royce Mothers III and his 16-year-old stepson were driving on Ashland City Highway, north of Nashville, Tennessee. They were heading into the city on a rural stretch of the highway, just before Briley Parkway. It was July 5, 1995, and the day was already growing warm, the heat beginning to rise in waves from the asphalt road. Suddenly, Smothers saw black smoke coming from beyond a clump of trees. He pulled his blue Toyota truck onto the side of the highway and stopped. Father and son began walking toward what appeared to be an abandoned house that had smoke pouring from its windows. There was a driveway leading up to the structure and a small parking lot, but despite the fact that there were no cars in sight, they decided to check and make sure that no one was inside the building. Although it appeared empty, it wouldn't be unusual to find transients occupying such an out-of-the-way place. Perhaps squatters had inadvertently set a fire, or so Smothers may have thought, before deciding to enter to make sure no one was in danger. Smothers and the teen entered through a window where the glass had been broken out. Smoke had begun to fill the room and made it hard to see very far inside. As they continued inside, they saw that a pile of rugs was on fire. An old mattress lay in another corner. The men picked up the mattress and placed it on top of the burning rugs to extinguish the flames. As the fire began dying out, they made a horrible discovery. From underneath the smoldering pile, they saw a pair of legs and an arm. They quickly exited the house, jumped in the truck, and drove to a payphone to call 911. Just before noon, firefighters arrived at 4522 Ashland City Highway. They found a vacant and dilapidated house where the fire had been reported. The building had once housed a church, long since shuttered. A rusted mailbox with faded letters that spelled out Church of the Living God was still present at the end of the driveway. But after the small fire was extinguished, what was discovered could only be described as unholy. A body was found rolled up inside a rug. Other rugs have been piled over it, doused with an accelerant, and set on fire. The body was that of a female, and she had also had accelerant poured on her. Blood was found splattered on the wall next to the body, and a blood-stained cinder block lay near her head. The body was taken to the coroner to be examined, and evidence was collected. The victim had been bludgeoned with an object, 
most likely the cinder block, and her nose and cheekbones were broken. The skull was also damaged in several places. It appeared she had also been stabbed in the neck several times. Mercifully, the coroner found no evidence of smoke inhalation, suggesting that she'd been set on fire post-mortem. Fingerprints taken from the body were run through a database to try and determine identification. A match was found when the victim was connected to an arrest the previous year for a drug charge. She was identified as Joyce Dean Goodner, a resident of Ashland City, a small town located just north of Nashville. Joyce Goodner, a mother of three, had turned 35 years old three days before her murder. Homicide investigator Grady Aleem and Sergeant Anna Marie Williams of the Metro Nashville Police Department were assigned to the case. Now that they knew the identity of their victim, they next set their sights on identifying her killer. Veteran homicide detective Grady Aleem, who had been with the Nashville Metro Police Department since 1971, led the investigation into Joyce Goodner's murder. His partner, Anna Marie Williams, joined the department as a patrol officer in 1986 and had moved up to homicide investigator less than a decade later. They first gathered all the information they could about the victim. Joyce Dean Goodner was born on July 2, 1960, and her family had lived in Nashville for a few generations. Her mother, Annie M. Finney, still resided in East Nashville. Joyce was one of nine children. Six sisters, Peggy, Gladys, Edwina, Margaret, Gardenia, and Linda, and two brothers, Nathaniel and Joseph Goodner. Joyce was the mother of three daughters. Sonia, born on Christmas Eve in 1976, was her firstborn. Having her first child on that special day must have seemed like a gift to the young mother, and perhaps she dreamed of the life she might have raising her child in a large extended family. Her child would have scores of aunts, uncles, and cousins to love and care for her. Sonia became a big sister first to Laquita, born in 1980, and then a second baby sister, Lawanda, was born two years later. But Joyce's life took a hard turn when she became dependent on drugs. The details of her life are sketchy at best, but while it appeared she spent some time homeless, she did not have a criminal record other than the drug charge in 1994. While Joyce Goodner had many relatives in and around Nashville, she may have been estranged from them at times due to her drug use. Her last recorded residence was listed as a family shelter in the city, although her mother and siblings resided nearby. Joyce, just 35 at the time of her murder, was also the grandmother of two. The detectives began their investigation with an eyewitness account from the morning Joyce's body was found. At about 11.30 a.m., a truck driver who was also traveling down Ashland City Highway drove past the smoking building. He noticed two men who appeared to be fleeing the vacant house. He described one of the men as a black male, about six feet tall and in his early 20s. The second individual was described as a white male around the same age, with brown hair and a small build, and wearing a light-colored shirt and blue jeans. They had driven off in a green or blue long-bed Toyota pickup truck. Unfortunately, this lead was quickly determined to be Royce Mothers and his stepson. They were ruled out as suspects when detectives discovered that the time of the 911 call they had placed confirmed their account. Joyce Goodner's boyfriend was located and brought in for questioning. After learning of Joyce's murder, Luther Wynn gave an accounting of his movements on July 5th, 
He had been with Joyce the night before and had last seen her at 2 a.m. when he left for work. Records would show that he'd been at work from 3.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. on the 5th. Joyce, the coroner had determined, had been killed not long before she was found at 11 a.m. that morning, ruling Wynne out as a suspect. Wynne told the officers that Joyce may have been in the company of a man named James Washington on the last day of her life. Officers tracked down Washington's last known address a few days later. They paid a visit to the home to look for him on July 10th. He wasn't there, but girlfriend Rosalind Butler was, and she spoke to the police. Rosalind said she and James Murray Washington had been living together for about two and a half years. Just two days earlier, on July 8th, she had asked Washington to move out. She said his drug use had increased to the point where she no longer wanted him in her home, and he'd since moved in with his mother. Asked to give an account of Washington's whereabouts on July 5th, Rosalind said he had left for work as usual at 6.30 a.m. However, when he returned home later that day, he told her he had clocked out of work at noon. The day after the murder, a woman called police to report that on July 5th, she had driven by the abandoned house where the woman's body was found. It was about 10.30 a.m., she said, and she remembered that a dirty black Camaro had been parked in the driveway. She also reported seeing a silhouette outlined in one of the windows of the building, which appeared to be that of a man. She drove by the house again on the way back about a half an hour later, just before 11 a.m., but the car was gone. Detective Elim now asked Rosin if Washington had a car. She said that lately he'd been driving a black and gray Chevy Camaro that he'd borrowed from his brother. He was supposed to buy the car, Rosalyn said, but had failed to come up with the cash, and his brother had taken it back just that day. Later that same day, Rosalind contacted Washington and told him he was wanted for questioning, so he went into the station to be interviewed. James Murray Washington, 32 years old, stood 5 foot 6 and weighed 160 pounds. He readily admitted that he knew Joyce, but said he didn't know her well. He gave the following account of Wednesday, July 5th. Washington reported that he had left his girlfriend Rosalind's house, where he was residing at the time, at around 6 a.m. to go to work. But when he arrived there at around 6.30, he decided not to work that day because it was raining heavily. Curiously, I could find no reports of what James Washington did for a living, but we'll assume it was something outdoors, possibly construction. Yes, he said, he had been driving a borrowed black Camaro that week. On the day in question, he sat in the car for about 10 minutes waiting for the rain to stop. When it didn't, he left, driving from his job in Southern Hills to North Nashville via Nolensville Road. Washington said he met up with a girl named Lucy around 7.15 a.m., and, endeavoring to be completely honest with officers, admitted that he and Lucy spent about 35 minutes together smoking crack. After that, he decided to visit a friend named Red. But as luck would have it, his car ran out of gas on the way there. He then walked to a friend's house who he called Lala, who was later identified as Bernice Riley. He asked her to borrow a gas can and a few dollars for gas. She told him that she had neither. Washington said that he then, quote, walked around and got $2 together for gas. He returned to the car and drove back to 10th Avenue North. It was now around 9 a.m. He had seen Joyce Goodner that morning, Washington admitted. When he got to 10th Avenue North, he saw her, quote, coming out of Henry's house. Joyce had asked him, are you doing anything? 
to which Washington answered yes and told her he had a small piece of ready rock, a slang term for crack cocaine. Washington said he and Joyce came to an agreement. He would share the drug with her in exchange for sex. According to Washington, Joyce got into his car and they drove a short distance away where they had sex parked in an alley. He then drove her back to Henry's house. She told him to wait for her, that she was going inside and would be back out in 30 minutes. I assume Washington was implying that Joyce went to Henry's to score more drugs. He said he waited about 45 minutes, and when she didn't return, he left. He then drove home. The investigator questioned Washington about a few holes in his story. First, well aware of the area and early morning Nashville traffic patterns, the detective said it should not have taken him 45 minutes to get from his workplace to North Nashville on the route he claimed he'd driven that morning. At most, the detective said, it would have taken 15 to 20 minutes. Secondly, they had verified with Washington's employer that he had been scheduled to work on July 3rd, 4th, and 5th, but had failed to show up on all three days. They also, of course, noted the similarity between the description of Washington's car and the car the witness had reported seeing parked in front of the abandoned house on the morning of the murder. Investigators considered James Washington a person of interest and searched the Camaro and the crime scene again, but could find nothing tying him to Joyce Goodner's murder. The condition of the body was not conducive to DNA testing, especially not in 1996, when the use of DNA as evidence was still in its early stages. Even if they had found DNA that pointed back to Washington, he had already admitted to having sex with Joyce the day she was killed. In either case, there wasn't enough evidence to press criminal charges against James Washington, and they did not turn up any other likely suspects. So while they suspected he might be Joyce's killer, her murder went unsolved. It wasn't until a dozen years later that there would be a break in the case, by Washington's own admission. Joyce Goodner's life was cut short at the age of 35 when she was found brutally beaten and stabbed in an abandoned house on the outskirts of Nashville. Her body had been set on fire in an attempt to conceal the grisly crime. While this heartless plan had not worked, the case had nevertheless remained unsolved. The person whom investigators suspected of the crime but had no evidence to make an arrest was ultimately charged with another serious crime and placed behind bars years later. In 2006, a decade after Joyce's murder, James Murray Washington was found guilty of attempted second-degree murder and sentenced to 15 years in prison. Washington had spent almost three years incarcerated at the Turney Center Industrial Complex in Hickman County, Tennessee, when he suffered a medical crisis in 2009. On March 3rd, Washington began complaining of severe chest pain and was sent to the prison infirmary for evaluation. He told the prison doctor that he'd been experiencing seizures, and while the physician noted that the inmate appeared lethargic and drowsy, he did not appear to be in immediate distress. However, to have him checked out thoroughly, Washington was transported to Nashville General Hospital. He was not given any medication before being transferred. Washington was escorted by two officers, James Tomlinson and Corporal Homer Lee Carey. The officers would later report that Washington did not seem in medical distress during the drive, and while he appeared concerned, had remained calm. 
Washington was admitted to the emergency room where he was hooked up to an EKG machine so doctors could monitor his condition. The inmate lay in the hospital bed with Officer Tomlinson posted nearby. Tomlinson would later report that around noon, Washington called him over and said, I've got something to tell you. I have to get something off my conscience, and you need to hear this. He would then say, I have killed somebody. I beat her to death. At that point, Tomlinson walked out into the hallway and called his superior, Corporal Carey, into the room. Carey reported that Washington then told him the same thing. I want to confess something to you, Washington said. Carey asked if he wanted to confess what he was in prison for at that time. Washington replied, no, sir. I want to confess about killing a girl. Carey asked to whom he was referring, and Washington answered, Joyce somebody. Carey would later say he believed Washington said her last name was Good something. The officers, now taking notes, wrote that the inmate claimed he had murdered Joyce Goodner or Goodman near Ashland City, wrongly stating the year to be around 1991. The officers reported that Washington appeared calm during his confession, but the corporal would also report that the inmate thought he was seriously ill. Because Washington believed he was dying, he wanted to die with a clear conscience, which had prompted his confession. But shortly after this murder confession, doctors informed Washington that he had not suffered a heart attack and they had not observed any seizures since his arrival at the hospital. His condition remained stable, so he would soon be cleared to be returned to the prison. Well, this came as quite a shock to the man who had become repentant for his past sins after convincing himself he was on his deathbed. When Washington was returned to the Turney Center, he attempted to recant his confession, but investigators had already been informed about it. They discovered that while Washington had been investigated in the murder of Joyce Goodner in 1995, the case had gone cold. Washington's confession to not one but two police officers pretty much sealed his fate. The Davidson County DA's office now charged him with the murder of Joyce Goodner. While awaiting trial for the murder of Joyce Goodner, James Murray Washington now said he was suffering from hallucinations. He claimed to be hearing voices and seeing people who weren't actually present. He also began talking to these invisible people. He was finally sent to the DeBerry Special Needs Facility, a maximum security prison in Nashville that housed prisoners with serious medical conditions. He was evaluated by staff psychiatrists and diagnosed as psychotic. He remained at DeBerry for 45 days before being returned attorney. But it appears that this was all part of a strategy by Washington and his attorneys. They sought to have his hospital confession suppressed, claiming that he was, quote, not in his right state of mind to give a voluntary confession to anybody, end quote. They claimed this at a pretrial hearing. The judge denied this motion, and the case went to trial in 2012, with the confession admitted into evidence. Most of the defense's case presented at trial was an attempt to show that Washington's confession was not reliable and could not be used to convict him of murder. They claimed that he'd been hallucinating when he'd made the admission to the officers. The defense called a pharmacist to testify regarding the side effects of the medication Washington was taking at the time. He had been prescribed medication for high blood pressure and hypertension. Partisan, a brand name for the antihypertensive drug diltiazem and lisinopril, a common high blood pressure medication. 
The pharmacist admitted that hallucinations were listed as a possible side effect for Cardizan, but they occurred only very rarely. Cardizan had been first prescribed to Washington in January of 2009. Upon being admitted to the DeBerry facility, he was also given Haldol, an antipsychotic medication often used at that time to treat schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Dr. Otis Campbell, medical director at the Turney Center where Washington was incarcerated, said the inmate had not reported any hallucinations after he was released from the psychiatric facility and sent back to Turney. The doctor also testified that on March 3rd, when Washington reported having seizures and was sent to the hospital, he did not mention nor appear to be experiencing hallucinations. Dr. Renee Levan Glenn, a psychiatrist who had evaluated Washington at DeBerry, also testified for the state. She said that when he was admitted, he was shaking and appeared agitated. He told Dr. Glenn he was hearing voices and also expressed suspicion or paranoid ideas. He was admitted on March 4th and remained in the acute psychiatric unit for just shy of a month. Dr. Glenn said that Washington's symptoms appeared to be more pronounced when he was being observed. Other times, when he was unaware he was being watched, he seemed perfectly calm and unaffected. He ultimately was diagnosed with delirium, a state of confusion that generally cleared up over time, the doctor testified. Upon questioning by the prosecutor, she also testified that doctors at DeBerry were unaware Washington had confessed to a murder and had tried to recant his statement soon afterward. Asked whether this might have motivated him to exaggerate or even fake symptoms to appear to have a mental illness, she responded that it would, quote, be easy to malinger hallucinations, and a person may do so to cloak a statement they wish to recant. Finally, when asked to evaluate whether Washington's confession may have been given as a result of hallucinations, as the defense claimed, Dr. Glenn testified that the specificity of his confession was different from those of typical hallucinations. While his confession could have been a delusion or a fixed false belief, a confession made while a person is hallucinating is generally more elaborate, she said. Washington's statements, the doctor testified, were very matter-of-fact, quote, like he was trying to reach some sort of goal in reporting that, end quote. After a three-day trial, the jury convicted James Washington of first-degree murder. The judge sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of Joyce Gooden. Had he not confessed to the murder when he mistakenly believed he was experiencing a life-threatening illness, Washington would most likely be a free man today. James Murray Washington was sent to Whiteville Correctional Facility to serve his life sentence. His attorneys appealed his sentence, stating, among other things, that he had not been read his Miranda rights before making the incriminating statements to officers. He had been in custody at the time of his confession, which he still claimed was as a result of hallucinations brought on by side effects of medication. So any statements made without being read his rights were inadmissible, he claimed in the appeal. The appeals court disagreed. Miranda didn't apply in this case, the court ruled, because Washington's statement was given voluntarily. The state was in no way involved in compelling the confession, as he had, quote, not been summoned for questioning. He himself summoned the officers, initiated the conversation, and was not confronted by evidence of guilt, end quote. His life sentence was upheld. Confessions made to a third party are often considered hearsay and are inadmissible in a court of law. But deathbed confessions are considered more trustworthy by the law and may be allowed. 
The logic goes, if a person believes they are dying, they have no motivation to lie. As for Washington, according to the state of Tennessee, this still applied, because even if he just thought he was on his deathbed, the admission would still be judged as trustworthy. Another theory has been presented as to why James Washington decided to confess, even though he didn't appear to be in very serious medical distress. Washington, some believe, was hedging his bets. If he did die, he thought his confession would allow him to stand absolved before his maker. If he didn't die, well, Washington may have mistakenly believed that the statute of limitations had run out on the 1995 murder, which, again, he mistakenly confessed he'd committed in 1991. But it wouldn't have mattered if he'd committed the murder 14 or 18 years earlier, because the state of Tennessee does not attach a statute of limitations to serious criminal offenses, including murder. In December 1995, Joyce Goodner was included in a memorial service organized by the Friends and Family Association of Nashville. FFA members are people who are or have been homeless, as well as their friends and family. The FFA has a tradition of gathering at the end of each year to remember those who have died homeless in that calendar year. The 1995 gathering was the fifth such memorial held, and over 100 people from the Nashville area had already been honored. Some had died as a result of drugs or alcohol, others from diseases or accidents, and still others, like Joyce, had been murdered. Forty people gathered in Riverfront Park that cold December day to hear the names read out of those who'd been lost in 1995. David Bowles, Harold Childry, Ralph Deal, Sharon Agee Fincher, Ron Fowler, Joyce Goodner, Larry Greer, Damon Marsh, James Powell, and Santiago Rocha. Ray Klimley, who himself had been homeless for three years and had helped to organize the service and read the names, said, They were individuals. They were our friends. They were our family. An American Legion color guard presented the colors to honor the homeless veterans who'd been lost that year. Reverend James Cole gave the invocation, quote, We call out their names for the city to remind everyone that these persons who often lived life anonymously who so often were treated as invisible or ignored on these streets or sidewalks, who perhaps to many were deemed not worthy of having a name, did indeed have a name and a life which was precious in the eyes of the one who never forgets them or their names." End quote. Joyce Goodner had not been forgotten. When her eldest daughter Sonia was informed that her mother's killer would finally be held responsible for the murder, she told a reporter, I didn't have any trust in the system. All of a sudden, I got this phone call and they said, we think we found him. She and her family were grateful they finally had answers, and their mother, their sister, and their daughter could now be at peace. In 2006, Sonia placed a simple statement in the local paper, The Tennessean remembering her mom. Joyce Dean Goodner, In Loving Memory, Sadly Missed, by Sonia Goodner. That will do it for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Don't forget to secure your tickets to CrimeCon UK and use my discount code onceupon 21 for 10% off your registration and to let them know that I sent you. I really appreciate it. 
Would you like to get true crime trivia sent to you each week by text, as well as announcements and updates from me? You can receive texts from Once Upon a Crime by texting OUAC to 408-676-1770. That's the letters OUAC to 408-676-1770 to receive texts from Once Upon a Crime. Text messaging provided by Text Sanity. Don't forget, you can always visit our website at truecrimepodcast.com to get all episodes of the podcast, links to our sponsor page for discount codes, all our social media links, and even visit our merchandise store for t-shirts, tote bags, mugs, and more. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Vernon. Original music and final sound mix by Aaron Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.